Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, September 2nd. A merry Christmas to all of you after we were treated to such a spectacular match from Andy Murray. He comes back from two sets to love down to defeat Yoshihito Nishioka. That's obviously the headline match, but of course there were 63 other fantastic first round matches for us to break down on today's podcast. We've also got the beginning of the second round of this U.S. Open on day three, so we'll preview what all of you fans can expect to see on Wednesday. We also have a little bit of breaking news here at Crack Rackets. We have obtained and reviewed internal USTA documents that reveal not only the names of the players directly impacted by Benoit Pair's positive test for COVID-19, but also what the protocols are going to look like for those players. So want to talk a little bit about that article, of course, recap all of day two's phenomenal action, and joining me to do just that as he has, what, every day these past two weeks? You, of course, know him as our Cracked Rackets do everything, a former Denison men's tennis great, the greatest and only undefeated high school coach in Missouri tennis history, James Foster McDonald. Jamie, how are you doing this morning? Mm, appreciate that uh, boost to my ego. Undefeated, zero and zero. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't talk about the fact that I have zero wins. Just talk about zero losses. Hey, I didn't say that. I didn't mention the zero wins. I wouldn't do that to you. I appreciate that. No, I just needed to humble myself. It's okay. (laughs) No, self-deprecation builds trust, a wise man did say. But yeah, it's an action-packed Wednesday here on the Mini Break Podcast. Of course, we are going to talk about all of the action, give our in-depth match breakdowns. We've got four matches for you all today. We'll talk about the rest of the day's biggest upsets, run through the day's results, how the top seats looked, and then, of course, as I mentioned, preview all of day three's action. But let's start with the breaking news, Jamie. Uh, Of course, as I mentioned, we have obtained these internal documents that reveal the new U.S. Open COVID-19 protocols. We also now know the names of the players directly put into, we'll call it, advanced uh, protocols for, uh, given their, uh, how close they were to Benoit Paire, their exposure, I'll say, to Benoit Paire. And we can even get into those names now as we have them for sure. We learned that there are two groups of these players in two different groups of protocol. There are the players who are more intimately in contact with Pear, and then there are those who are deemed to have tangentially come in contact with him and who are going to be subjected to daily testing, but otherwise still free to move around the grounds as they deem you know, as they deem uh, necessary. Uh, let's start with the group in the less strenuous uh, category of self-quarantining now. Daniil Medvedev, last year's 2019 uh, U.S. Open finalist last year was 2019. Uh, that 
that shows you where my brain is at, folks. It was a late night reporting this story, and I should say from the get-go a huge thank you to our friend Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times, who I texted at about midnight last night, a little bit after that, and I said, hey, I got, the, I have this lead. I want to explore it. What do you think? And he didn't ghost me. He didn't say, hey, text me again in the morning. He said, oh, let me call you immediately, and then helped me write the piece, which you can now find on our website. So a huge thank you to Ben in helping me report this. But again, three names, Daniil Medvedev, Damir Zumher, and Nicolas Mahout will now be subjected to daily testing given their proximity to Benoit Pair, but will otherwise be able to move freely around the grounds. Seven other players, five of whom French, Kiki Mladenovic, Gregoire Barrer, uh, Richard Gasquet, Adrian Manorino, Eduard Roger Vasselin, and two Belgians, Yasleen Bonaventure, Kirsten Flipkins, uh, they are going to be put in a more strenuous protocol. And what that more strenuous protocol looks like, obviously, morning temperature checks, daily COVID screenings. That's their protocol for the rest of the way. Uh, The players will also receive private transportation when traveling either to or from the hotel or USTA National Center. The USTA has appointed one specified staff member to coordinate the daily schedule of each impacted player. The group is not allowed to leave their respective hotel rooms except when they are traveling to or at the USTA National Center. Uh, And these players cannot travel the ground freely either, Jamie. The keys to their respect you know, isolation areas will be kept by tournament staff by whom they must be also accompanied when walking through the facility. Grandstand court will serve as the main designated area for players in isolation, though multiple other areas on site have been cordoned off for the specific usage of these players. And then, you know, the last couple of things, impacted players, again, USDA trying to limit exposure. Uh, These impacted players will have their credentials taken from them upon return to their respective hotels. The thinking there being players are supposed to be wearing their credentials to move around freely at the hotels. Of course, they will still have their self-appointed, you know, or self-appointed, they will still have their appointed staff member with them. Uh, but without that credential, in theory, security would say, hey, you're not supposed to be around here. This is, again, just to try and limit the exposure for other players. And then lastly, and this is not going to surprise anyone, upon elimination from the U.S. Open, the players must receive explicit approval from the USTA doctors before leaving New York. Those are the big details, Jamie. Curious your thought, too. I know that's a lot of information, but just curious your initial thoughts. Yeah, I mean, so so bottom line, hope it works, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's what everyone's thinking right now is obviously, you know, they're trying to limit exposure, do the correct things in terms of quarantining. Um, and, you know, they've identified these players and they're working hard to, you know, do take the appropriate steps and whatever's necessary. But at the end of the day, you just hope it doesn't actually impact the tournament itself, especially when you've got key players, someone like a Medvedev, um, you know, you list all the Frenchmen and women uh, who were affected as well, potentially exposed. Um, yeah, I mean, at this point, the best we can do is hope that it works and hope that all the tests and screenings that they have to go through daily come back negative. Yeah, and to what you said, I think you kind of nailed the intent of this. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of, you know, we're really hoping this works out. And initially, the USA protocol was any player exposed, any player who tests, you know, a player who tests positive, and Benoit Paire did, uh, he's going to be removed from the tournament. And he was immediately. But the rest of the protocol, and we saw it with Guido Pea at the Western and Southern Open, these players were supposed to, even if you were indirectly exposed or, you know, tangentially, again, uh, you were supposed to have to quarantine as well. And you 
you were supposed to be removed from the tournament. They're obviously not doing that. They have adjusted their protocols. They, it's Again, it's, it's the malleability is probably the most concerning part. It's the fact that, yeah, they're saying, well, we hope this works, and, you know, we're screening these players daily, but Daniil Medvedev, a, you know, the number three seed here, a guy who a lot of people have as a contender, one has to wonder if it wasn't Daniil Medvedev, if it was all players ranked outside of the top 50, would the USTA have stuck with their guidelines, right? Because part one, you're right, this is them saying, well, we hope this works. I think that's part two as well, is the adjustment of these guidelines, uh, they're noted, you know, they're, they're noticeable. The fact that they are trying, of course, to adapt in the moment, as we all are. And of course, you, you want to give the USTA credit for putting on this event under any circumstances. This is, you know, to criticize them for, you know, to hold an event of this scale, it would just be hypocritical for me to criticize them while simultaneously, you know, being enjoying it as much as I have. They deserve all of the credit at the, in the world. At the same time, this was the sort of concern we knew from the beginning. If one player tests positive, how do the USTA guidelines hold up and where do we go from there? We now have the answer to where are we going from there should someone test positive. And now the huge question comes, will these guidelines work? And, you know, I, it's not in the story, but I know the first wave of test results came back yesterday. I know another wave of test results are coming back today and that we haven't heard any positives reported. That's obviously very, very good news for all of us following from afar, but this certainly does feel like a risk. The fact that the the, the USTA compromised their guidelines to try and get these players uh, to try and keep them in the tournament. You can, you know, two things can be true. You can applaud the USTA's intent to try and say, hey, we're trying to continue safely. At the same time, you can also question, but is this a safe continuation? I don't know your thoughts on that, the, the malleability of these guidelines. Yeah, I mean, so it always it always sounds nice to set guidelines, right? Um, then it, things change when things become real, um, and so you see USTA's reaction. And of course, they want to keep this tournament going. They don't want to, you know, make seven players withdraw. I mean, I, I think from what you've seen in that list, maybe they're just treating them consistently. But I mean, for, there are a lot of people who I would not, and I don't think you would either, consider or deem as contenders um, who they're treating the same way. So maybe they're just trying to make that, you know. Uh, let's say fair with Medvedev in the mix, but hopefully I think they would treat any player in the draw the same, regardless of the fact that they think they have a shot to win or not. So, it, you know, at least from what we've seen so far, I think I can make that assertion. Now, maybe that's completely out the window if someone like Daniil Medvedev isn't in the mix. Honestly, I don't know. At this point, though, it's tough to say because everything, any sort of event holding is a calculated risk, you know, especially when you have such a large one like this. There is danger. There's inherent danger here, especially with people coming from all over the world to do it. I mean, it's unfortunate. Again, it gets back to hoping that nothing goes wrong. Again, like you mentioned, we haven't had any positive COVID tests. Um, so that is a good sign so far. Um, again, just hoping for the best and that there isn't other, you know, any sort of exposure later in the tournament, because realistically, we've only been through two days. So yeah. there's a lot of this tournament left to be played. Well, you know, it's also, but we've been through, right, 10 days in New York, if you include Western sure. Southern, a little longer than that. And to some things you said, A, it's the way this virus works. You know, Demir Zumher, who is the only player uh, uh, of the 10, not, you know, there's 11 if you include pair, but let's refer to the other 10 right now. Zumher is the only one along with Roger Veselin. Zumher lost his first round match, but, you know, Roger Veselin only playing doubles. The other eight players, they all won their first round matches. And Zumher in his first round, do you know? 
know who he matched up with, Jamie, off the top of your head? In case you don't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You do. It's Novak Djokovic. And, you know, that's where you're like, well, if Sumer was positive, did he expose Djokovic? And that's how this spirals out of control. So to, it, it's just, again, we don't have to spend too much more time on this because a lot of these details are evolving. This will be a continuing story throughout the event, throughout, you know, the entire tennis world until we figure out a vaccine or figure out, you know, really a way to get the clamps down on this coronavirus. But again, it was just, it was when, when we got these documents here, we recognized right away that this has an impact. Uh, these protocols will dictate whether this U.S. Open continues safely or not. And if these protocols work, it will. And of course, that is what we are all hoping for. And, uh, you know, on of course, as always, we are hoping all of these players remain safe and healthy. We're wishing a speedy recovery for Benoit Pair. But these, this is a huge decision for the USTA with, without using hyperbole, hundreds of millions of dollars at stake legitimately. So uh, it, it's just going to be something really interesting to monitor. Jamie, any final thoughts on this? Uh, read the full article for more details. Yes, you know, quick plug. Love that. Love that. Yes. And again, a huge thank you to Ben Rothenberg for taking the time to help me with this story. Again, we will see where it goes from here, folks. And of course, the reason we are able to pursue stories, the reason when I get a tip at midnight, I can stay up till 4 a.m., know that we can write the article, be back on here at the mini break by 10 and get all of this out to you, Crack Rackets fans, is of course because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. I will keep this brief. Midwest Sports, use the promo code CR15. Aerobar.com, use the promo code CRACK15. You go to those two places, and I'm telling you, look good, feel good, play good. They will provide that. We are so grateful for their continued support. The least we can do, ask you to support both of them as well. Midwest Sports, Aerobar, you all know the deal by now. You also know that we retreated to a spectacular Day two of action at the U.S. Open. Second half of the first round was in play. And again, so many great matches for us to discuss. Let's get to our match breakdowns and the match we have to start with, Jamie. A match that, I'm not going to lie, we talked about it on our GSP Ace of the Day today. But personally, Max Rothman and I, we were feeling confident. We said, hey, let's throw on a Murray Tiafo parlay $100 to win $125. i am sorry for saying that out loud, Mom. Yes, I do end up taking action. Action on some of these matches. Why well, had a friend's parent once tell me, Jamie, they said, Alex, with how much you watch tennis, you should be taking advantage of your skill. You should be wagering on these matches because if you're not, then you're not, then you're wasting your time. Then you're not taking advantage of all, of, you know, your full potential. Anyways, you know who that, I'm sure you can guess who that parent was, mom. That is a side note to say, I am thinking about family. I am just getting so excited because Andy Murray's been, you know, personally a favorite player of mine probably since 2007, and we all know what he's gone through off the court these past two years with injuries, his hips, and just not knowing whether he was going to be able to return and be healthy, and even before we get into what this match looked like, Jamie, for Andy Murray to come back from two sets to love down, to fight off match point, to win this match 4-6-4-6-7-6-7-6-6-4, this was the first match that I thought more than anything deserved to have a full crowd in the state. Stadium, but it was still such a special moment. Yeah, I mean, look, all of these matches, and I assume there's going to be more and more of them because this is only round one, um, where we wish there was a crowd you know, providing an electric atmosphere. But um, at this point, it is what it is, right? And the level of play, and at least the level of competition, was just incredible throughout this entire match. I mean, hats off to Andy Murray for getting through this. This is the Andy Murray we've come to know, right? And, you know, 
we can all sit here and talk about how he's not at his peak because he's clearly not. Maybe he's getting back up to top form, but regardless, you know, he's still got the fight and, and, the, and the competitive nature. And so that's what allows him to get through, you know, 6-4 in the fifth in this one because Nishioka, also a grinder, a competitor, really put him, I mean, look, he put him all the way to defending match points, right? Um, and so he was one tiny step away from the finish line, but Murray um, brought himself back from the brink and ultimately came up with a huge, you know, champion level win. Now, Rothman and I agreed after this match, never put ourselves in a position where we have to root against Yoshihito Nishioka in a match ever again, because you're so right in. To one of your points there, that was the biggest takeaway from the get-go. Andy Murray is so excited to be back on the tennis court. And I know fans of Andy Murray's are probably thinking they're just as thrilled as he is. You're not. You can just tell from his body language. You can tell from the way he's competing, the way he gets frustrated at himself still, the way he demands excellence. He is just so happy to be back on the court. And the way he just stuck around in this match, I mean, 59 winners against 77 unforced errors, the way Nishioka moved the ball to the outer thirds, the way Nishioka just throws you... You think it's a shanked forehand because it just doesn't look like it's coming off the racket cleanly. It's elevated, it's slow, it's loopy, and it lands deep in the court. And it's just this nothing ball that was giving Murray fits throughout this entire match. And again, he was two sets to love down. He was down breaks uh, multiple times with Nishioka having two sets in the bag. And he just competed, competed, competed. And, you know, let's get into the match breakdown now because, again, you made this comment, and I thought it was so good when we were talking about the match off mic. You said, isn't there just a world, Alex, where Nishioka just moves Murray to the outer thirds, where he just kills him with a thousand paper cuts, where he's just, you know, moving him around and around, and Murray's not able to hurt Nishioka because of Nishioka's own speed. And you were exactly right. That's the match we saw just in the end, Murray barely enough juice to get by yeah honestly no, i appreciate that but uh this was the match that i was just dead on about i was talking to some other folks too about this match and i was saying look i think nishioka is really going to push him but murray's ultimately gonna you know come up with the goods and you know throughout the day i had gotten some texts they're like oh well looks like nishioka is going to win this thing and i was like hey it's not over yet murray's still you know murray's still in this thing and sure enough comes back wins the third wins the fourth and then finally takes the fifth. So it felt good to have this one on my side. I, unfortunately, um, don't live in a state where I can take advantage of my, as you call it, a skill um, to put money on this thing. But um, nonetheless, <laughs> felt good to have a prediction go my way. And, and realistically, this is, you know, you, you hope that this doesn't just completely gas Murray, right? Yeah. I mean, great, great that we're at a Grand Slam now, so he has the day off. Because, I mean, you saw him on court after that match. That dude was done. Yeah, no, and I mean, one thing just to note quickly, we, we're not going to talk about it at length, it was, I suppose, a mini story, was the great blackout of 2020. Obviously, when ESPN's feed went down for about 30 minutes, and again, Rothman and I have action on this match, I'm freaking out to Rothman, he's like, dude, relax, we're going to get through this, it's working for Murray, he's flipped the script while we're not watching. Uh, you know, I had a bunch of tweets in the queue about the blackout, where were you when the blackout happened? You know, I think, uh, what was the match I was watching? I think... Uh, Oh, it was Murray Nishioka. I think they only finished one point in all of that set of time, so we didn't miss anything. Uh, all, all of these different jokes I left in the queue. But, you know, yes, to your 
point, I think there were two definitive match sequences, and every point looked one of two ways. Either A, Andy Murray made the first serve, and in this match, 85 of 110 on first serve points, 77%. He made the first serve. He was going after his forehand, particularly as the match progressed. He was 38 of 58 at the net, found opportunity opportunities to move forward and did so. Now, there were times when Nishioka just used his speed, used his athleticism, the ability to take balls early, uh, that he was just, you know, t- he was able to play exceptional defense. And through the first two sets, he was just taking it to Andy Murray. But Murray was persistent. He kept attacking. Again, his forehand got better and more decisive as the match went on. That was one sequence. And I think in the fifth set, that was the sequence that prevailed. But the other sequence, the one that if you're a Murray fan, you're probably a little bit worried about moving forward, and if you're a Nishioka fan, you love to see... I mean, the way Yoshi Nishioka moves the ball around the court, the way no two balls are ever going to the, in the same direction, even if they're too cross-court, one's deep and elevated, the other's a short angle. His backhand little cross-court flip shot, his ability to open up angles, unbelievable. And then, every so often, he'll just smack one down the line to keep you honest and be like, hey, just so you know, I can also do this. And I mean, realistically, I know in the end, Murray 179 total points, Nishioka 176. If you're Yoshihito Nishioka, you're kicking yourself that you lost this match. Yeah, I mean, look, this was his match to win. Um, I mean, he had so many chances. Not Even if you don't mention the fact that he was up two sets to love, he could have won both the third and fourth sets. I mean, in, in the fifth, Murray did outplay him. I think that was the only set where Murray was positive on the differential um, of winners and unforced errors. But realistically, throughout the rest of the match, Nishioka had control of this thing. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily just mean control at every point because there were definitely some points where Murray was just going for big shots. Um and there were times where it was a little bit disheartening to watch that. I mean, obviously, he's trying to, to mix things up. To me, though, Murray was winning a lot of the longer rallies. And I know, you know, there's differences here because Nishioka can grind with the best of them. But Murray just had too many, just gave away too many free points to Nishioka in my mind. I mean, there's a difference between being offensive and just sort of bailing out before the point really even gets to a uh, to a, a, a point, for lack of a better word, where Murray's in a good position. To me, there were too many bailout shots, um, whereas I saw lots of long rallies where Nishioka, when he was forced to be the aggressor, sometimes he's not quite as comfortable being that all-out aggressor. Yes, he can do it and play that when he needs to, but he much prefers to have the long point completely set up and then perhaps have his opponent you know, miss because... Nishioka has hit 10 balls in a row and the other guy is just frustrated, right? So, you know, when Murray's aiming for the line, going for too big of a shot, it was free points to Nishioka. But credit to Murray, right, to flipping this on its head. Once he gets to the breaker, he's the competitor and anything can happen and ultimately plays a really clean fifth set. I thought Murray played two exceptional tiebreakers as well, was in control yeah. to start to finish. And to your point, Nishioka plus seven, 57 winners against 50 unforced errors. Not only was he moving the ball well around the court and taking smart opportunities, but he was so measured as well, so patient, right? waiting for that exact ball, hitting the short angle, then hitting another short angle just to get Murray stretched that extra bit. And, you know, if you're an Andy Murray fan, and then we can move on from this match, the things that concern you, 57% on the first serve, it has 
has to be higher. The second serve, there were a couple of wounded ducks in there. I mean, you, I, we were on the phone, and I said, hey, how fast do you think Andy Murray just hit a second serve? And you go, I don't know, 76 miles per hour? And it was 76 miles per hour. And, like, his average speed in this match on the second serve, uh, 90 miles per hour, which just, that's not going to get it done as you play players with bigger and bigger weapons. And, you know, the other thing, and I know Nishioka, a lefty, plays angles, spin, so he could expose this particularly. Murray flipped the scripts in set 3, 4, and 5 when he gave up slicing the backhand, when he started driving through it a little bit more. And it's just clear physically. And if I could ask him one question, I would say, hey, are you slicing the backhand more out of necessity or because you just like it as a tactical adjustment? And I think it's out of physical necessity, just given the positions he's hitting some slices in. And that is a concern for him moving forward. Yeah, and I will say this as somebody who slices a lot too much. Um, I think, <laughs> at least from what I've seen with Murray and what I saw in the Western Southern Open, yes, I think the physical necessity is there because, you know, when you look at an Andy Murray, you know, classic sort of performance, you know, to say five years ago, it's the Murray backhand and it's just so solid, right? Um, some of it, I think, too, is just habitual, right? Once you get in a habit of slicing, it sometimes just becomes this negative thing where you just get used to it because it can be such a comfortable shot. And so if he's continually getting pushed out running to his left by that lefty forehand right you know the slice becomes this comfortable thing but to your point he did a great job of really mentally locking in and say no I can't just get into this pattern where I'm simply getting pushed to my left and slicing because then Nishioka has control of the point in an in an easy way not a super aggressive way where he has to play and beat me through my actual backhand so I think you're dead on there and I think Murray just needs to continually lock in and say hey yes I can use the slice when it is a necessity but I need to make a you know calculated effort to continue to hit through it every single opportunity I have because ultimately that's my game yeah and look for Andy Murray the reason we go so in depth on this breakdown a that's my guy b uh because he hadn't won a Grand Slam match since the 2018 U.S. Open you look for Murray now uh, obviously he's played a couple events and with this win he's up to number 106 in the live rankings and the fact that Andy Murray seemingly retired at the end of the 2019 Australian Open and now we see him back near the top 100 Tennis is a better place when Andy Murray is playing well. That goes without saying. And so it was exceptional to see him back on the court. Uh, tennis is also a significantly better place, Jamie, when we get to see former Grand Slam champion Kim Kleisters back in action. And of course, all of us love seeing her during the World Team Tennis season, but she was struggling with an ab injury at the end of that. She had to pull out of the Western and Southern. We were all wondering. She looked really good, beat Kennan in World Team Tennis. How fit would she be? How healthy would she be coming into the U.S.? Open. No one's going to question her talent. No one's going to question her ball striking, but it was a really tricky draw for her as she drew uh, a, a, I believe, what is it? Alexandrova seated. I want to say number 21 21. seated, Ekaterina Alexandrova, and in the end, Alexandrova just too good. 3-6-7-5-6-1 over Kleisters. Let's start from the Kleisters end of this performance. No disrespect to Alexandrova, who I think our listeners know at this point. I am quite fond of her game, but for Kim Kleisters here, even though she lost this match, I mean, what has it been? What she took four years off, five years off after her last retirement, and to show this level of play, I was stunned. Yeah, I mean, look, she looked great out there. It was unfortunate, right, because Alexandrova has been in such great form, and I'm sure we'll talk about her at length for this one. But from the Kleister side, just you got to feel a little bit 
you got to feel for her here because she had this match. And that's not to say that Alexandrova didn't come up in the big moments and go on runs of points and games because she certainly did that, right? When Alexandrova was in trouble, when her back was against the wall, that's when she produced some great tennis and just put put on runs that Kleisters couldn't keep up with. But yes, unfortunate from the Kleisters end because really, especially after that first set, she had her chances in the second and it looked like she really could close this thing out. The thing was, so many points were just on Alexandrova's racket. And so, yes, you know, she was a little bit loose in certain times of the match, but when she, you know, really got her game back, it was on her racket and Kleisters, not much she could do. Yeah, and I'm going to take out uh, the stats from the third set because you look at it 6-1, it was a little bit of a runaway. But, you know, for Kim Kleisters in this match prior to that third set, she's, uh, I believe, 10 of 10, uh, or 10 of 10, excuse me. She's, uh, I want to say, 2 of uh, 13 on break points versus Alexandrova, who prior to that third set was 2 of 8 on break points. I mean, you know, Kleister's had so many chances to your point. And the thing she does well, the controllables, that serve, her contact point, her plus one forehand, it's still there. And like, I just don't get how that's possible. I take two months off and I get back on court and I'm like, oh my God, what do I do with my feet? Where do my hands go? Everything's callous. This hurts. I mean, she balled out, you know, 73% on the first serve. She goes 38 of 61 on first serve points, 12 of 23 on second serve points in this match. And, you know, through those first two sets, you look at her winner to unforced error ratio, uh, 20 to 26, which is pretty good. But as this match wore on, and this is where the credit goes to Alexandrova. Her game plan was perfect. She made this match physical. She made this match played in the outer third. She made that extra ball every time. And at times, that led to her playing tentative. That led to give, you know, that gave Kleischer's opportunities to attack. But in the end, Alexandrova, a player clearly playing confident and, in my opinion, her best tennis. Yeah, and I think, too, a lot of this is eliminated when you look at break points because Kleister's did a great job um, of creating break points but alexandrova did such a phenomenal job of saving those um, i mean look she she only allowed kleisters to go three of 15 on the break point opportunities and that's what i mean when her back was against the wall alexandrova came up with her best tennis in this and so when it came to the big points and, and sort of the business end of these sets when it when it was needed most i mean there really wasn't much of a business in the third because she ran away with it but realistically you know when it was crunch time alexandrova had all the answers yeah, I mean, in this match, not the cleanest total, but 29 winners against 32 unforced errors, considering she's playing someone who was playing so aggressively, hitting, you know, swinging so freely through the court in Kim Kleister's. That's a pretty good ratio. And again, this match, physical. Uh, I just thought Alexandrova, 58% on the first serve isn't great, but when she made that first serve, she was so good at taking control of the point. And when she was able to take control of the point, you know, Kim Kleister's was not able to play the best defense. And obviously that third set Alexandrova steps on the gas and that's a huge credit to her for just you know weathering the storm as you mentioned Kleister's really could have won this match in straights that she didn't is a testament to the way Alexandrova's competing to again her confidence right now and now she's got to be feeling pretty good that was the big first round test things you know it's rare that the second round match you don't want to say easier than the first round match and you look for Alexandrova right now and who she's matching up with in this second round I mean it's not a cakewalk in Katie McNally that's a really talented young player but you know Kleisters that's a that's a big ask for anyone and so she's got to be feeling good headed into her next match absolutely
Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, another player who's got to be feeling so good to have survived her first round battle, uh, Donna Vekic, who, of course, is the 18 seed. Uh, here she is, one of the other seeds in that Serena Williams section of the draw, a section that we all know is so fascinating given we don't know exactly what Serena Williams we're going to see on any given day. But Donna Vekic got a really tricky first round match. She matched up against Christina Pliskova, uh, obviously Christina Pliskova, twin sister of Karolina Pliskova, currently number 66 in the rankings, but had been playing pretty well in 2020, did very well in two of the warm-up events on clay uh, prior to this U.S. Open. She got out to a lead here on Donna Vekic and honestly had chances to win this match in the second, but Donna Vekic gets over the hump in this one three six seven six six four. Your thoughts on this match, Jamie? Well, I just want to go back to what you initially said. Pliskova absolutely had this match to win. She um, did, so, and she so, came out hot in that first set. Yeah, absolutely. She looked really really good um and you know you got to always expect someone like an 18 seed at donna vekic is going to bounce back but realistically plushkova pretty much had it under control even in the second as well she had many chances and ultimately this is the bigger theme for me throughout this match plushkova had the chances to really sort of step on vekic and end this thing and either plushkova just you know had an errant shot and missed one or vekic just stayed in points long enough to grind things out and and finally come up with a win herself and look ultimately you you know, you talk about the tennis, both of these players end up positive in the winner to unforced air category. So, you know, it was a high level of tennis throughout. Pliskova took a few more chances. Ultimately, you know, as I mentioned, had some unforced airs in the bigger moments. But realistically, this was a great match from start to finish. I mean, that's why we're talking about it right now. But you got to feel for Pliskova here because she had this match not only on her racket, but the, the finish line was in sight. Yeah, here's the story of this match from the stats, as you mentioned, uh, both of them in the positive ratio for winner to unforced errors. But in in one story, you know, in one stat, Christina Pliskova, 72% first serve percentage in set number one. She's 16 of 18 on those first serve points. 61% first serve percentage on the second serve. Uh, or, sorry, let, let me, Westoff, give me a rewind sound effect, please. <laughs> I'm going to read that a little cleaner for you, Jamie. First set, uh, Christina Pliskova, 72% first serve percentage. Second set, Christina Pliskova, 61% first serve percentage. Third set, Christina Pliskova, 48%. First serve per- 48% for the first serve percentage. For Donna Vekic, 42% in set number one, 64% in set number two, 58% in set number three. Pliskova's levels definitely dropped as this match got more physical, as this match got into the later stages. But as you mentioned, I mean, the plus one tennis she was playing in through the first set and a half, really even through the first two sets of this match, it was just outstanding. And I mean, you look in this match for Karolina Pliskova, 46 winners against 37 unfortunate 
forced errors, 49 of 68 on first serve points in general. When she was able to attack, when she was able to be aggressive, when she was able to get Vekic moving, and in this match, Vekic 26.1 feet per point, uh, Pliskova 23.7, so clearly it was Vekic getting stretched to the outer thirds. She was able to control this one. Now, this is where the Donna Vekic component comes in. 37 winners against 30 unforced errors against this Carolina Pliskova, a Pliskova, uh, Carolina, excuse me, Christina Pliskova, Pliskova who was dictating so well. That's just a phenomenal performance from a competitive standpoint. And for Vekic, again, this was another player who now the draw opens up for her a little bit more. Pliskova was the really tricky one. And I know, I think in that section, you have Madison Keys uh, as well looming. But I think for Donna Vekic to get through this one, major confidence boost. Yeah, it's got to be, right? I mean, she's got to be feeling good about this one. We've mentioned this with other players before. You have that test at the beginning of a tournament. You get that level mm-hmm. because you have the confidence of being able to get through a match. You know, listen, you you talked about it. Her level got better and better throughout the match, and that's exactly what you want to see. This is so much better than just surviving a scare, right? Because she starts a little bit colder, comes up, warms up through the match, and now she's feeling really good about how she ended. Um, it's just a good way for her to go, and she's got to be feeling good moving through this section of the draw now yeah I agree with you now she's got Teague next I think that's a matchup we both favor her in and so uh obviously uh you know where it it was a really good win for her we knew Pliskova was going to be a tricky opponent and she did enough there were times when it looked sloppy sometimes it does for Vekic but that combination of athleticism and shot making ability it's very, very tempting. And again, 24 years old. Her, Sakari, Mertens, Conteve, all advancing to the second round. I would, It would just make my theory feel so great if they all make the round of 16. That would just... Uh, that would just be such a delight. Mwah. But I guess I already got my uh, reward with Murray uh, winning today. So, you know, I don't want to be too greedy. But I'm feeling greedy because, and I know, you know, it's a, it's a sin to be greedy. But let's I'm feeling greedy because I got to watch five sets of Sinner Hatchinov. Cue the cricket in the background. Uh, you like that, Jamie. Um, but anyways, looking at our next match here, uh, let's talk about the Sin Man. Yannick Sinner, who had Karen Hatchinov up two sets to love, who really really looked like through the first hour and a half of this match, you know, the combination of just aggression from the baseline, the fearlessness he plays with, the, you know, confidence he's willing to just pull trigger on any ball he feels like he can. He looked so good in this match. And yet, when we have talked about this both off mic, when we previewed it on mic uh, for both our ace of the day and yesterday, we said for Karen Hatchinov, this was a must-win match. We said given where he is, you know, 23 or 24 years old at this point, a bunch of Grand Slam experience, three out of five sets, he needed to make this match physical. And if he could, he would be able to outlast the Sin Man. And that's exactly Exactly what happened. Karen Hatchinoff, 3-6-6-7-6-2-6-0-7-6, win, uh, win for him over Yannick Sinner. Jamie, what'd you think about this one? Yeah, this was weird. Um, it, it didn't get off to the start that I thought it would, to be honest. I mean, I thought, you know, Yannick Sinner could be competitive in this match, maybe take a set, um, but I absolutely expected Hatchinoff to dominate, and, and I figured that would start from the beginning and really it did Yannick Sinner came out firing in this match and credit to him the young Italian because the level of play you know was astonishing you and I both talked about this off mic as well about how his movement has already you know seemed to improve astronomically so you know what else can he improve in his game being so young you know he's very talented and a very promising young star on the tour but you know on the flip side you know Hatchinov 
you got to feel for him a little bit in the first part of this match. He's like, whoa, what is going on here, right? I'm the 11th seed. I'm supposed to be dictating terms here, and I'm simply not. So good for him for steadying the ship, getting through set number three. I think getting through set number three in the way he did, 6-2, really opened the door for a blowout set four. Um, and, you know, I think Yannick Center in his head, if I had to guess in set four, once he got down, he's like, all right, we're playing for set five, right? And that kind of shows in how he locked back in to get to a fifth set tiebreaker. But, you know, at that point, Hashinov had the momentum. He had the confidence because he was playing better, feeling better. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to plug anything there. And ultimately... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> in the fifth set, it is Karen Hatchinov, a bit more of a veteran 7-4. So a good performance for him. Again, not the cleanest for Karen Hatchinov, but you got to feel, you know, you got to feel good for him because his back was against the wall and he was able to come out swinging and ultimately win this thing. Yeah. So uh, again, I, let me start with the Hatchinov portion of this, and I want to know what you think. Through the first two sets of this match, and in total, Karen Hatchinov, 53 winners, 38 unforced errors throughout the five sets, but 19 of those 38 unforced errors came in sets one and two. I thought the Sin Man did such a good job, again, attacking that Hatchinov baseline, which he, or uh, backhand, which he just kept shanking wide or leaving a little bit short and giving Sinner opportunities to attack. I thought Sinner did a great job keeping Hatchinov on honest by going down the line. I mean, you look for Sinner in this match to hit 68 winners against Karen Hatchinov. That's Del Potro-esque power. That's how hard you have to hit the ball or Dominic Team on his best days to hit 68 winners against someone who moves as well as Karen Hatchinov. And yet that's what the Sin Man was able to do. And yet to your point, and you know, it, it has to be mentioned, Yannick Sinner, I think it was after the third set medical timeout, his lower back was bothering him. And yeah, you nailed it. That fourth set, he mailed that one in. You or I could have probably beaten him in set number four, just given his effort level. But, you know, for Hatchinov, it was that he he was clearly frustrated with himself, and yet he didn't quit on the match. And I know how many two sets to love comebacks are we going to see between this, between Schwartzman, between... It seems like all these players are going up two sets to love, and then, you know, physically you drop the third set, and then you drop the fourth set, and now it's a five-set match, and you're just kind of in trouble. Um, but, you know, for, for Karen Hatchinov, he... He did play more solid. 53 winners against 38 unforced errors. As I mentioned, 19 unforced errors in total against in sets 3, 4, and 5. He let Sinner beat himself. He said, oh, Sinner, you're going to give me these next two sets? I'll take them. He played high margin tennis. He played to big targets. You look at his numbers in this match, you know, 99 of 159, 62% on the first serve percentage, 177 of those 99 points, 35 of 60 on the second serve, held Sinner to 37 of 80 on Sinner's second serve. And, you know, to your point, I think we can both agree Sinner moving way better. Uh, you know, clearly he continues to physically develop. He's able to take balls early now uh, and get, you know, beat Hatchinoff to the spot. And he's able to play a little bit better defense now as well. It reminds me of Tsitsipas in the way they've kind of grown into their body and are just good movers now. You know, the firepower is, it, is now, uh, the firepower they have is all now so, uh, now also reflected, hey, great shot to me, in their movement abilities. But, you know, for, Sinner literally slapped his way through that fifth set, Jamie, and for Hatchinov to just to stay steady, to not get too frustrated with himself, although he definitely got frustrated with himself at times, and I mean, he had 22 breakpoint chances. He should have ended that fifth set 20 different times. Yeah. I still think this is a good win for Karen Hatchinov. Not a great performance, but a good win. 
Yeah, it's a good win, and it's an important win for me. Not only yeah. just in this, uh, not only in this, you know, tournament round one, but for me, this highlights a larger thing with Karen Hatchinov. It shows that he is mature because the Karen Hatchinov of a couple years ago is probably losing this match, being pissed in the third or fourth set, slapping. Obviously, in this case, with Sinner being injured, you you know, as you mentioned, Hatchinov was not going to lose that fourth set. But to me, for Karen Hatchinov to regain his composure, you know. He can be frustrated. It's fine to be frustrated, but the problem was the past, and in the past, we've seen Hatchinov be frustrated, and then that translates into him just playing horrible tennis, right? He's just going for too much. He doesn't care. He's just ending points unnecessarily. In this case, you're absolutely right. He played it very smart. Yes, he had chances, and he should have won it earlier in the fifth, but ultimately for him to, you know, contain himself while still allowing himself to be frustrated, noticing that he wasn't playing his best tennis, but not letting that get to him and ultimately ruin the moment, it is a real sign of maturity from the young Russian. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, for Yannick Sinner, just to put the bow on this, positive performance. You're up two yeah. sets to love on a top 20 player, and you looked better doing it. But now it's just getting himself physically, right, to where three out of five sets is routine for him. Sure. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Well, the last three matches we've talked about, uh, Alexandrova, Hatchinoff, Vekic, they were all able to avoid upsets. A couple of players were not able to avoid upsets. Four seeds going down on the day. And yet, Jamie, none of these seeds losing surprised me at all. Let me go through them quickly. On the women's side, Bonaventure, a three-set win over Shui Zhang, the number 25 seed. Iga Sviatek, a three-and-three win over the number 29 seed. Kuder Matova on the men's side, Milman over Basilashvili in straights, and young J.J. Wolf, a four-set winner over number 29 seed, Guido Pea. Again, none of those surprised me, Jamie. Did any of them shock you? No. I mean, look, we talked about the Milman-Basilashvili one, too, and it's just incredible. How many times, I, I don't know, Basilashvili, right, he's always ranked, or he's always seated like 18 to 25 in every yeah. single time, and magically, like most of the time, the upset seems to be coming in the first round. And so it's just, I don't know, it's weird, right? You don't want to take anything away from Millman here because obviously he's had great performances at the U.S. Open and such a tough out. But the fact that, you know, an unseated going up against a guy who's routinely seated was seen as the favorite and wins this in straights, I don't know. It's, it's just a little odd to continually see this happen at, uh, at the slams. But good for Millman, and as you mentioned it, no, none of these are surprises. Yeah, the only response to that would be, you know, Basilashvili puts together three incredible weeks a year, right? And the point system, you put together three incredible weeks, you're going to be in between 20 and 40. Like, that's just how it works on yeah. the HP. Like, I could not agree with you more. The only thing I would mention on the women's side, Sviatek in straight sets over Kuder Matova. Straight sets surprised me, but in case yeah. you forgot about Iga, folks. She's back. She looked great. That was a noticeable win for me. You know, that was not a three-set match, but we did have a couple of three-set matches. A couple of matches go the distance on the men's side as well. Not as many as on day one, but still some fun results uh, for the women. The number 15 seed, Maria Sakari, tested, but ultimately advanced over Vogel in three. Alize Cornet, three-set win over Davis Bagel in the third. Same for Gasparian over Monica Pui. On the men's side, a couple of other five-set matches. Rude, 
Two sets to love down. He comes back over Mackie McDonald. Same with Marin Cilic. Two sets to love down. He comes back against Denis Kudla. Miomir Kasmenovic almost blew a two sets to love lead, but he ended up beating Majir. And then young Emil Rusevori, who we continue to compliment and praise here on this mini break podcast. A really impressive five set win over Alias Bedene. Your thoughts on the match that went to the distance, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll start with the one you just mentioned, Bedene. I mean, he had an impressive, you know, stint at the Western and Southern. So I was expecting him to get through this match. That just makes it even more impressive for Rusevori that he beat him, especially in five, right? Um, Bedene had looked good. His level was really, really solid. And so this, for me, this is one of the biggest winners on the day is Rusevori. Yeah, he was outstanding. For Casper Rude, too, you know, I sent out the tweet and the typical Gruskin jinx was in play because we said from the get-go, and we talked about this, me, you, and Maxie talked about it as well. Uh, Mackie McDonald, in theory, great matchup for him against Casper Rude. He can use the spin Rude produces. Rude does hit a heavy ball, you know, kind of bunt flat on that, drive it through the court, move forward, and he had plenty of opportunities to do just that, but physically for Casper Rude, that was the thing that impressed me the most. He just kept tracking down that extra ball. His level got better. He got more confident as the match went on. I thought that was a really good win for him. I thought it was a really good win for Sakari as well. And then for Marin Cilic, I think we were all ready to count Cilic out, particularly when he went two sets to love down. You can see the piece already. Everyone was ready to send that tweet of, oh yeah, Marin Cilic washed up, not what he used to be, Not no longer a threat at the majors. And he's not a threat at the majors. But to see him get this win, obviously I'm a huge Dennis Kudla fan, but it was a good win for Cilic. Yeah, it was a good win. And, you know, it's unfortunate to see. I mean, obviously, Chilich, he's won this tournament, right? So you got to figure that comes into play that he can, you know, sort of call on some of that confidence, you know, even if it is from six years ago. But, yeah, ultimately great for him to get through this first round. Does that really mean anything for him moving forward in this tournament? I don't know. It's, it's different than a lot of other players where we talk about, oh, you have a tough challenge at the front, front end of a tournament and move through it. I don't know if that really applies to a guy like Marin Cilic. I think this is really just survive and move on. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. But still, that is what he managed to do. So credit to him. Let's quickly run through the rest of the day's results. Again, only two seeds go down on the women's side. Straight sets performance for the rest of them. Kennan, Serena, Sabalenka, Keys, Kanta, Muguruza, Mertens, Mukova, Nisimova, Sloane Stevens feels notable, and Own Shabor. And honestly, I'm going to throw Vika Azarenka in there because she doesn't have a seed next to her name. But let's be honest, folks. Uh, all straight set winners on the day. You also had wins from Katie McNally, talented young American, former Cracked Interviews guest, Katrina Scott, Bernarda Perra got a win, Sasha Vickery got a win, talented young Canadian Layla Fernandez got a win, and then it feels notable, Jamie, Jill Teichman did not get a win. She gets knocked off by Bolsova in straight sets. Uh, your thoughts on the rest of the women's results? Yeah, I mean, we'll start once again with the, the last one you mentioned. Um, a bit of a surprise to see Teichman go out here, right? Someone we were both pretty high on, maybe had um, some people doing some upset alert action in her section of the draw because I believe she would have squared off against Keys, Keys in the second round, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and so, you know, a lot of people had that one circled. We had seen Jill Teichman show a really high level. So this one's a bit unfortunate and generally surprising. Um, the one that I would circle to, and you mentioned it briefly, is Azarenka. The fact that she only dropped three games in her opening yes she was expected to win but to me this just solidifies that she is still here it wasn't just a a one-off tournament in western and southern she really is back to 
play the game. And so um, really excited to see that level from Vika Azarenko. Yeah, and you know, the most notable to me, we'll talk plenty about Serena throughout these next two weeks, I'm sure, so we don't have to for now. That Madison Keys and Garbin Muguruza looked as good as they did through matches num- through match one. And same with Sophia Kennan, obviously. That was something I took notice of because those are three players on the top of the list of the women who legitimately have a shot at winning this title. Also, really good win for Sloane Stephens. Can't mention enough how much she needed that one. Three and three, she gets over the hump. I'm sure, uh, obviously, that is a momentum builder for her as we move forward. Quickly through the men's side as well. Pretty straightforward day. Team, Medvedev, Berrettini, RBA, Rublev, Dimitrov, FAA, Demonauer, Evans, Rayonich, all winners as seeds. Really good win from Francis Tiafo. Think he looked about as good as he has in a win since that Australian Open in a four-set win over Seppi Escobedo, another American winner on the day. Sam Query upset by Andre Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov no ranking points right now. He struggled with injuries so much these past two years. Straight set win for him over Query. Uh, you know uh, the rest of the results again fairly straightforward. A couple of four-set matches sprinkled in here and there, but a lot of tennis that we expected to see. Jamie, your thoughts from the men's side yeah really surprising to see that with query i mean look maybe we haven't seen his best recently but you know sam query routinely shows up in the majors particularly with how we've heard these u.s open courts are playing very fast you would have figured that query would be you know really on his game here but ultimately you know folding in that third set losing in straights is just not a good way to go out a little bit surprised from uh, feli lopez yes um, you know, he gets the opening set, but then from there doesn't get another one, and Carvenas Benia takes him out. I'd say the only other one I would circle, just because, I, and I told you on yesterday's pod as well, I was excited to watch, is Alex Demonauer. Looks mm-hmm. like he's back and looking good. You know, not the not a blowout win like we saw from Sitsipas, you know, 2-1-1, one, and one, but still a straight sets win at a major. Alex Demonauer looking good, and so, you know, it feels good to have that sort of confidence back in him. Yeah, what we learned is that loss to Struff was about Struff, not about Demon Hour. And yeah. so I completely agree with you there. What did surprise me, it was a physical match. I really thought Sandgren was going to get at least one set against RBA. And obviously, you know, 4-4 four, yeah. four, and 6, it came pretty close in all three of them. But I expected that one to at least go 4. I mean, Andre Rublev looks like a stud. Uh, Daniil Medvedev, stud. FAA tested today. But a lot of these young guys are looking good. And that's something, obviously, that's encouraging for us our cracked rackets as we have long been fans of the next generation and with that in mind let's talk about the next generation of u.s open matches we move on to the second round in day three let's get into our preview jamie of course there are so many great matches and we made our picks for the day on our gsp ace of the day presented by DraftKings, which you can go listen to on our great shot podcast feed or go see on our youtube as a video but what are the matches you're going to be watching most closely here on wednesday jamie there's a lot of them. I'd say for me, one that you know we both talked about on our preview of day one is Jack Sock. Um, you know he faces uh, you know a, a bit of a tricky task in Adrian Manorino, the Frenchman. Um, just an odd matchup there, especially with the lefty. You, you wonder if he's going to be able to pick on the Sock backhand. I don't know. To me, this is a great test for Jack Sock because Adrian Manorino, no, not somebody who's going to hit him off the court, but somebody who's just really, really solid. And Jack Sock's going to have to have a clean performance, which is something we want to see from him uh, to be able to get through and get through to the third round. So I think this is a really important one for Jack Sock in particular. 
particular, there's a lot of exciting ones out here, right? You know, you want to watch Edmund and Djokovic to see what Edmund can do. You want to watch Zverev Nakashima for you know, tons of reasons. I personally invested in Michael Moe and uh, Yalmanar Struff <laughs> because I think that that is a very interesting matchup, and I was very impressed by Michael Moe in his first round. Um, on the women's side, I mean, again, really, you know, have your pick of the lot, right? Uh, because there are so many, you know, talented people out there right now. I think the one that I have to cir- circle is the one, the upset that I picked in my bracket that we both talked about, Shelby Rogers and Rybakina. Um, mm-hmm. I know you did not have that one being circled as an upset, but I think that Shelby Rogers can pull that off. So I'm just excited to see, you know, if she can do it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good pick. CeCe Bellis, Jennifer Brady, I will be watching that one from first strike to last strike. I mean, there's so many good men's and women's matches, as you mentioned. I would watch Diana Yastrzemska and Madison Brangle, because Brangle's the sort of player who gets in your head, or just makes that extra ball and gets you frustrated. And we all know Diana Yastrzemska fine with getting frustrated. I think Hercots versus Davidovich Fokina for the next-gen slappies like myself, that's a low-key one. That's really, really fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in general, so many great matches. Pliskova versus Caroline Garcia, that's absolutely upset alert. If Naomi's not Osaka isn't healthy, Kamala Georgie can hit you off the court, so that's going to be a really fun one. But overall, it's going to be a really fun day of action, and of course, if you miss out on any of today's action, be sure to join us on the Mini Break Pod tomorrow as we break it all down. We will, again, try and get these episodes shorter and shorter as the event progresses, but there are so many matches for us to discuss. And then, of course, we broke a little news at the top of this podcast. So, you know, we had to talk about it all, keep you up to date on the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Hopefully, we did that today. And of course, if you, again, have missed out on any of the action, be sure to go to our website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, The Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews, and Inside Out Podcast. Be sure to go follow our YouTube channel. And of course, for the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we're at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out, making all this content possible. And again, to read more about these brand new U.S. Open protocols they have put in place to try and continue with this event following Benoit Paire's positive test for covid be sure to go read that article I wrote with Ben Rothenberg on our website, crackedrackets.com. But with that in mind, Jamie, any final thoughts? Hey, matches are about to go on for day three, so we got to get off and prepare for the next day. It's never right. ending. It's never ending. Then let's rock and roll one last time for my wonderful host, James Foster McDonald, our super producers, Max Fleeger and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aero Bar, and all of us here at both Cracked Records and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>